Today is one of those days where I, I want to make sure that there's a lot of information and next week is even more information. But I'm trying to figure out a way to make sure that I communicate this in a way that's not just you getting data, but you becoming inspired to live faithfully in this fallen world. Uh, so keep that in mind as we start this next couple of weeks. We only have about three messages left in Revelation. <clears throat> and then Jesus will come back and we'll be done. No more preaching. <clears throat> but may, if not, we're going to do Joshua. Okay, so. Um, all right. This week, the title of our message is a new heaven and a new earth. Have you, as a follower of Jesus, maybe even not as a follower of Jesus, ever been captivated even comforted or awestruck by the beauty of this world? You know, maybe it was like this, a serene mountain vista. Uh, maybe it was a cascading waterfall in the woods. Maybe you saw the Grand Canyon or some other majestic canyon or site. Maybe it's one of our spectacular Siesta Key sunsets. Those are pretty amazing too, aren't they? Everyone in the world, to some degree, has experienced these moments. Even people who don't believe in God can appreciate the beauty of his creation without even knowing who created it. However, anyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, can see that this world in its current state, as beautiful as it is, it's far from perfect. It's plagued by natural disasters, extreme weather, earthquakes, hurricanes. Anyone can also see how humanity has left permanent scars on the natural beauty of creation over thousands of years of human sin and, and evil. We have inflicted damage on creation in the name of our survival or our progress or our conquest or our greed. We've even inflicted scars on God's creation because of our carelessness. Anyone, even those who don't believe in God, can also observe that there is a spiritual impact of human evil in the world. Even people who don't know Jesus or don't believe in God will not deny that there is evil. And as beautiful as creation can still be in those moments, those moments where we see it, we know that it's full of spiritual chaos, immorality, violence, deception, and a very scarred image of what it once was. For the unredeemed, this fallen world is sadly, think about this now, for those who don't know Jesus, this unredeemed, fallen world, as beautiful as it may be, is all they have. It's the best that they can hope for. This right now, this here, for unbelievers, is as good as it gets. But for the redeemed, there is hope for a new world where we live in perfect harmony with nature, with each other, and with God. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. I just want to point out this idea of mourning and death and crying. I want you to remember that for later on when we connect it to the Beatitudes. 
for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You thought it was all, all in positive, right? Then he throws that in here at the end. Thanks, thanks, John. Again, this is important in this passage that we understand the history of what's going on here and how John's first century Jewish Christian readers would see it. They would see a litany of ancient promises that were nothing new to them. First of all, there's this promise of a new creation. The promise of God creating a new heaven and a new earth, and even this idea of creating a new Jerusalem, all of it is woven throughout the Old Testament. John's readers would recognize several specifics being borrowed from one of the most well-known of these Old Testament passages of promise from Isaiah chapter 65, Verses 18, 19, and 20, uh, 24. For behold, I create a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. You see that it's lifted directly from Isaiah. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Again, lifted directly from this passage. But be glad, rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. You can see that this promise that John is writing about in Revelation 21 John's readers would immediately go, oh, wait a minute, that's Isaiah 65 among about 10 other passages just like this. See, this was the primary hope for every Jew. They hoped that one day God would return with Messiah and restore the kingdom of Israel to its former earthly glory and that he would rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple so that it would become once more the dwelling place of God. They reminisced about Solomon's kingdom. That was the era of Israel's greatest expansion, its greatest wealth, its greatest global spiritual political influence. During Solomon's reign, kings and queens from all over the four corners of the world journeyed to Jerusalem for one reason, to witness Solomon's unparalleled wealth, power, and wisdom firsthand. There's a story of the queen of Egypt, Sheba, coming. But when Jesus came, he taught something very different. He taught that hope for a new Israel, a new earthly Jerusalem, was actually an empty hope. He taught this prophecy was not about the kingdom of Israel, but about the kingdom of God, a world where he would dwell among his people, people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. The next ancient promise that they would recognize is this one about no more sea. We've learned how the sea was a metaphor for chaos and danger and storms were, and that's the first thing. And then we also learned that people saw the sea as the place where invading nations would come. So the sea, and it was very common in both biblical and cultural context, John's first century readers understood that the sea was a metaphor for danger, for evil, for the unknown. 
Matter of fact, if you remember in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, John describes the dragon's beast, the first beast, which stands for all the world empires, coming from where? They rose out of the sea. So John's readers would understand that this promise means no more sea does not mean there's no more fish, no more beaches, because beaches are pretty. We like them. They understood it was a metaphor for the moment God eradicates the threat of evil and darkness from his creation. Then there's another promise, no more tears. The promise of no more tears in this passage echoes prophetic promises throughout the Old Testament. Here is the most familiar. I like this one the best. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. See how Revelation 21 lifts that right from Isaiah. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So again, for centuries, Jews assumed this promise was about what life would be like in a restored earthly kingdom of Israel and a rebuilt new Jerusalem. That'd be a great place to live. No more tears, no more crying, no more shame. But Jesus taught something very different. He taught his disciples, who these first century Jewish Christian readers were, he taught his disciples there would always be tears in this life, right? He says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. But that his promise was about the kingdom of God. Jesus always taught that this life would be hard. And in fact, Israel, Jerusalem, even the temple, as they knew it, were part of the reason life became hard. It had been corrupted by man's own evil desires itself. Remember, he went in there and he flipped over the temple uh, tables. This is my house. You, make it a, you need to make it a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. So the first century Christians that are reading this understood this was a promise about life in the kingdom of God when Jesus returned. And that's the way we should read it as well. So that's the history. Look at the spiritual part. There's a lot here. We're going back to the beginning with this. There are theological concepts in this passage that trace all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, you see what's going on with Revelation here, right? It's been working its way back, undoing all the mess that has happened because of sin and darkness and Satan and evil and humanity. He's winding it all back, unwinding all the wickedness, getting to the place where the earth and the world and his relationship with man could be restored to what it was in Eden. And both Genesis and Revelation 21 contain three elements, three elements. First one is creation. The next, next element is sin and death. And then the third element is a promise of restoration. First of all, let's look at the idea of the theology of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Throughout the creation story, this is what God does. Every time he completed a phase of creation, he stopped and says, this is good. He expresses complete, full satisfaction with what he has done, what he has made. After creating the earth and sea, he said, this is good. Created the sun, moon, and stars, this is good. The fish, the animals, and the plants, this is good. When he created Adam and Eve, he said something different. He said it was very good. Everything about creation between Adam and Eve and the animals and the earth and God, everything was in perfect sync, perfect harmony. 
There was no conflict, no tears, no death, no destruction, no chaos. And God gave them his creation, gave it to Adam and Eve as a gift. This is your world. Oversee it. He commanded them to populate it, care for it, but mostly enjoy it. From Adam and Eve down to the smallest grain of sand, there was no chaos. No conflict, no sin, no hardship, no disappointment, no sorrow, no pain. And in Eden, the scripture teaches us that God dwelled with them, walking with them each day in the cool of the day, delighting with them in his creation together and their relationship. The world was physically, spiritually, emotionally perfect with breathtaking beauty. There was harmony between creation and its creator. But then, there's sin and death. Somehow, Adam and Eve, with all this, right, they, they have all of this. They have this relationship with God. They own the world. They can do anything they wanted except for one thing. Somehow, they became discontent with life in Eden. It wasn't enough. Their perfect, like the fellowship with God, did not seem to fulfill their desires, and they chose rebellion instead. They listened to the false promises from the serpent, who we know in Revelation is called the serpent, that old angry devil, and Satan. They listened to him. They said, wait a minute, you're telling us that God is holding something back, then we can have more than what we have now? Well, yeah, you can be like God. You won't die. He's just afraid you're going to be like him. We see this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. This is the, Satan's legacy. That ancient serpent, that's Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. That ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceit, that they deserved to be their own gods. They didn't have to settle for being creations. They could become creators themselves. They believed him. And their rebellion initiated a long, painful history. From Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation 20 of unfaithfulness, betrayal, deception, murder, violence, immorality, idolatry, greed, sickness, and death. Humanity began its spiral downward into a wicked abyss, a descent vividly depicted throughout the Old Testament and throughout Revelation until this point. And now Adam and Eve, because of their rebellion, they face hardship. They face trial. And then we find out later on they face family dysfunction as one son murders another. They face pain. They face grief. They face sorrow and death. Everything that we face today. Their rebellion sadly also subjected creation to that same curse. The creation they were told to care for had been marred. Natural disasters began to take place like storms and earthquakes and fires and disease and famine, which persist to this day. As creation began to groan for its own redemption. That's the narrative of all scripture. From the end of Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation 20, as both the redeemed and creation eagerly anticipate the day when someone would make it all new again.
And that comes the promise. Amid this tragic story, God made a promise. He was going to set everything right through his son, Jesus. He promised he would redeem both his people and his creation. Genesis 3.15 was the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent or Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's prophesying, God is. He's saying there's going to be an epic battle of redemption from now until Revelation 21. The first part of the promise includes the eradication of all the evil that Adam and Eve introduced into this world. By the way, fun fact, before I get to that, you know the phrase I was telling you about in Genesis, it, is, it was good? It doesn't occur again after Genesis chapter 2. Until they reappear when Jesus was being baptized and God said, I am well pleased, he is good. Isn't that cool? Nothing about good until when our Redeemer comes to earth. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 11. When he came out, out of the, up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Or the same translation can be made, with you it is good. So that first part of that promise includes this eradication of evil through Jesus, the evil that Adam and Eve introduced into this world. Part two of the promise is the renewal of creation and God's people back to perfect harmony with God as it is in Eden. Jesus started, by the way, when he was fulfilling his promise, he started with part two first. When he conquered sin and death at the cross and his resurrection. But John's vision here is describing that future moment when Jesus fulfills part two of the promise to redeem all creation. There is eternal judgment for everyone who is cowardly and unfaithful and detestable and murderers and sexually immoral and idolaters and liars. Don't worry, I'll explain that later. You think, well, that might be me. Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, that list, this isn't anyone who's ever committed one of those sins. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble, correct? That's not what that is. It's much deeper than that. You know what it is? It's the great white throne of judgment that we saw last week. Judgment of Satan and all those who have chosen to hope in his false promises instead of the ones that Jesus has made from Genesis 3.15 on. So don't read that list and get scared because you might have lied once or twice. Here's what Jesus does. He creates this new heaven and this new earth. And the scripture says in Revelation 21, he creates a new Jerusalem. Fulfilling his original plan, which was what? To dwell with his people. In fact, this new creation will be better than the old one was in Genesis chapter 2. It'll be God and man and creation in perfect harmony with God forever with no chance of anyone like the serpent messing it up again. So that's a lot of deep theology. I could go on for another hour, but I won't. Let's talk about the personal section today. I want to talk about our new home. So this was the sermon preview this week. You think God's creation is taking now, just wait for the new heaven and the new earth. I want to talk about New Jerusalem just a little bit. It's a very controversial topic, but I think it's pretty clear in Scripture what it is. 
John's vision of New Jerusalem, which, by the way, it'll be described in, in painstaking detail next week, is the link, the key to how we can apply this passage to your life today. The old Jerusalem was beloved by God's people, was it not? Because it was the place where the temple was, the place where what? God dwelled. That's why it was special. Here, we see new Jerusalem descending from heaven with Jesus, and the scripture describes it as being dressed like a bride coming down the aisle for a wedding. By the way, it's the same way that Jesus, John, and the rest of the apostles describe who? The church. When Jesus returns. In fact, in verse 9 of the same chapter next week, we discover an angel says, come, let me show you the bride of the Lamb, New Jerusalem. That's the best way to interpret Scripture is using Scripture itself, is it not? So we know that New Jerusalem is the church. It's us. John confirms to his readers the prophecies about New Jerusalem aren't about a city. They're about a new people from every tribe and every nation. Now put that together with what I just shared you with how John describes New Jerusalem in today's passage and with what Paul says. So this is today's passage, okay? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there any mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the dwelling place of God. Correct? He's describing New Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Boom. New Jerusalem is you. It's me. It's us in perfect completion. Do you see the connection with today's passage? New Jerusalem isn't a place it's a powerful metaphor for who we are, the bride of Christ, the church who is the new temple of God. Just as the first creation was a gift to Adam and Eve, this new creation is a gift to who? Us, a wedding gift. Look, the earth God created was breathtaking. And it still can be breathtaking today. But it's been damaged. It's like a stunning building or work of art that's been damaged. Our world still has traces of its original splendor. The same way we can still see in this picture here of Notre Dame, the signs of the former beauty of that cathedral, right? Even though it's been totally marred by fire. You see the beautiful statues and the stained glass window and the archways, right? But clearly it is nothing what it was in the beginning, but you can still look at it and see, wow, that was a beautiful building. That's what today's world is. You can still see, oh, wow, this must have been something in its original intent. But it's a little different now. Paul says this, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We see this picture of both the creation and the redeemed groaning, waiting, desiring, longing, hoping together for our redemption, our recreation. We want to be made new in Christ. And every person in this world, 
followers of Jesus or not, can perceive how this world, through the evidence of its former beauty, has been scarred by human evil. Throughout history, the unredeemed have tried to reverse this themselves. They've tried to recreate the world in their own image to make it what they believe that it should be. They have tried through government and empires, philosophies, economic systems, man-made laws and justice. They've expressed their dissatisfaction with what this world is. They've also tried to cast their vision for what they think this world should be, trying to offer a hope to the kind of world they want to create. They've used art. They've used music. They use movies and stories and monuments and education, every type of human expression you can imagine to offer hope for a better future, a better world, a better place. But their promises always fail to deliver. And the unredeemed spend their existence bouncing from one broken promise to another. It's tragic. But for the redeemed, our hope is in a different promise. That our Jesus will set this world right when he returns. And yes, the cowardly, the unfaithful, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters and the liars, they'll inherit judgment. But I want you to watch the contrast with how that group is described with what is described by Jesus when he talks about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. I'm not going to put them up there. I'm just going to say, so you saw that, the detestable, the liars, all, all those bad people. Then he says there are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the righteous, the merciful, the pure-hearted, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the meek. What does he say they inherit? The earth, the new one. The kingdom of God, where they will be comforted, satisfied, given mercy, and called sons of the living God. So 2 Peter chapter 3.13, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've said it to someone you love, man, if I could, I would just give you the world. They actually can't do it. Sorry to break your heart. <laughs> but dear church, this is precisely the essence of this promise that we receive through Christ that John is describing. He will give us the world. And the redeemed, we know that these moments of awe that we experience the beauty of this world are just an appetizer, a taste of our life with Jesus in the next. The redeemed know only Jesus has the power to fulfill the promise of creating a world, the one that every human heart actually belongs for, even if they don't want to admit it. A new creation that is free of war, betrayal, unfaithfulness, idolatry, immorality, violence, temptation, evil, mourning, affliction, it's a promise of a new creation that becomes our daily hope. Empowering us by this hope to remain faithful in this fallen world. It's a promise that this present life 
will never compare to the joy awaiting for us in God's presence on the new heaven and the new earth. It's a promise, this promise of this new creation is a promise that infuses into our lives deep purpose. Something others search for their entire lives and never find. Do you hear me? At the end of their life, they realize, what was it all for? For us, we will know. It's a promise that allows us, the redeemed, to appreciate creation, even in its scarred state, in ways the unredeemed never will. I mean, I don't know how you look at a sunset on Siesta Key. I mean, yes, it's beautiful, but I don't think you can really enjoy it as much if you don't know Jesus. If you don't believe that God made it. And what it's going to look like in the new one. Through this promise, we know one day we, New Jerusalem, will become the very temple, the very dwelling place of our God. On that day, we, New Jerusalem, are given the world. A new heaven, a new earth by our Jesus, where we will revel in the full majesty, beauty, and power and presence of our God for all eternity with no chance that evil of any type will ever ruin it again. Jesus, first we confess you were not always good stewards of this world you've given us. But we know through the process of the cross and your church and the Great Commission, you have begun making us new creations and one day you will make this earth a new creation. You will make this a place where you dwell within our hearts in perfection. Now, Lord, in this world, every once in a while we get distracted by promises of something better. It's easy to fall into that trap. Lord, I pray that when we see glimpses of what this world used to be, even, even now after thousands of years of sin and evil and chaos, even now it still maintains some of its original beauty. When we have those experiences, God, please use those to inspire us to remain faithful until the day that you recreate all of it in a way that just blows our mind. Lord, we ask that you would keep this promise in the forefront of our thoughts, knowing that because you loved us, you really will give us the world and those who have received mercy will inherit the earth. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Palm Sunday, next Sunday, pancake breakfast with bacon. <laughs>